Hi there, this is James Marley from Livewire. And Graham Han from Cufflinks. Welcome to this week's episode of Inside Investing, where Graham and I will take you inside some of the interesting and topical articles that have been published on our investing websites over the past week. And we'll feature presentations or conversations we've had during the last week or two that we found particularly uh, interesting. So James, I'm going to kick off this week with a conversation that I had with David Bell, who's the Chief Investment Officer of Mine, Wealth and Wellbeing. That's a, an industry fund. And he'd just been over in the United States talking. David, David was meeting with, with fund managers. But he made an interesting uh, comments about what's happening with the peer-to-peer -peer lending space over there. And sometimes this is called marketplace lending, sometimes called crowdfunding, which started as a market where individuals could lend to other individuals. And, and that was how it operated for a while. But then people got to realize that it's very difficult for an individual to assess the credit of another individual, just looking at a few features on a website. The way it's evolving now, it's becoming uh, much more like business to peer, where fund managers are using these sites almost as aggregators of personal loans. And they might do a thousand of these loans, and it doesn't matter so much if some of them default because you're, you're making a, overall a higher return on your investing. So when I heard that sort of conversation, I, I found an article which uh, someone had written um, a, uh, in the Australian market uh, analyzing what Society One has been doing here and saying in fact that Society One when you look at the numbers only has 320 uh, investors over, after five years of, of running and in fact this is what is happening with Society One. The institutions are lending to individuals rather than peer-to-peer. I ran that past Society One and they said look we've always had a diversity of funding. Some individuals some institutions. So we actually have that uh, debate in the edition of Cufflinks this week. But I think it's a really interesting that where people were talking about this disrupting the banks um, as a way of people to invest peer-to-peer, -peer, it's taking on different characteristics than that. So interesting discussion there. Who have you caught up with this week? Well, I caught up with a, uh, a lot of people this week. It was a difficult choice <laughs> as to what I would, uh, would talk about. But what I've chosen was a presentation that I went to from Ashok Jacob, and he's the Chief Investment Officer of Ellison Capital. And he provided his view on markets at the moment, and it was pretty upbeat, which was why I wanted to talk about it. This quote from him was, we are currently enjoying the best global growth environment since prior to the GFC, and that's happening with very modest inflation. He pulled out a few really interesting stats. He said of all 45 countries defined by the OECD, 100% of them are seeing strong growth. And of these, 33 of them are seeing accelerating growth. So right. his view was that under this scenario, uh, common sense would indicate and indeed dictate that a recovery like this will lead to further asset price appreciation. Now he was highlighting this information in the context of the question whether or not investors should be fully invested. Right. The question for him was really, you know, in this environment where growth is good and inflation is not to be seen, 
you know, that's unprecedented in his lifetime. The big question is what has happened to inflation? And his point was that that was really what people need to keep an eye on and be aware of. But in the absence of, of inflation showing up, that asset prices, particularly in risk assets like equities, are going to continue to march on. One of the interesting points that he made was that from the reading he's been doing, none of the central bankers have an answer on inflation. No one knows where it's gone. Yeah. They're quite worried that the tools and the sophisticated models that they're using to identify inflation are not working. So, you know, we're a little bit out to sea. All that he can say is that the bad scenario is low growth, high inflation. Where we are today is diametrically opposed to that, which should be a, a good thing for risk assets. He concluded by pointing out three scenarios. He said inflation stays low and growth continues to be good, could lead to a speculative bubble. Inflation returns in a measured fashion, which would broadly remain supportive. Mm -hmm. And then the third scenario is the, the bear case or the worst case, which is that everyone's behind the curve with regards to interest rates. Inflation rears its head right. and that paints a, a relatively ugly picture. But I really like the way that he concluded here, which was we don't need to react to data that's simply not there. And in that case, invest on and invest away. This issue of whether a fund manager should be fully invested, I've, I've had this discussion with a, a lot of people and you do see a lot of fund managers at the moment who are holding high levels of cash. A couple of uh, very high profile uh, fund, fund managers are higher in cash than normal. Uh, you know, Roger Montgomery, Hamish Douglas. My position with these is when, when I give uh, money to an equity manager to manage on my behalf, I'm allocating that as part of my equity exposure and I want 100% of that in the equity market. I, I don't want to find out subsequently that 50% of it is in cash because I'm managing my cash somewhere else in my portfolio. I understand what they're trying to do. They are trying to protect their investors that have money with them. Um, and you know, they would say that's one of our responsibilities. As, as someone who allocates to many different um, buckets and I've got my cash somewhere else. So it's, you know, it's interesting, I would prefer an equity manager to put it all into the market, but you know, obviously they feel differently. In terms of articles from the website, Graeme, do you want to take us through some of the ones that you've picked this week? Yeah, I will, James. I, I've selected a couple. Um, I was talking to Chris Cuff, who you know, is my business partner with Cufflinks, that's where the name comes from, and he was recalling how in the early days we actually had uh, Paul Keating, so former treasurer, former prime minister, wrote a few articles for us. And it was really interesting to go back and look at some of those from 2013 where you know, Paul Keating is considered the father of superannuation. So it's very interesting to see the thought process where he talked about how he built it on three pillars. The retirement income system relies on a pension system, a compulsory superannuation system, and then voluntary contributions to superannuation. But the, the part I really liked that I'd forgotten about is that in Keating talks about when, when he designed the system, he was thinking of retirement being between the ages of 55 and 75. That's really what he was uh, thinking about. But compulsory superannuation came in in 1992, so that's like 25 years ago. 
And he said it's more appropriate now to think of it in, in two stages of retirement. One is people who, who are 60 to 80 years old that he called the retirement living and lifestyle uh, time. And, and you know, not to think of that as, if you like, the end of your life, but it can be a really good time. But then the 80 years to 100 um, group, which he says like technically is beyond the period of, of um, life expectancy previously. And uh, he talks about this as, as being a, a period of um, maintenance and disability. Now, I know that's not a very encouraging thing about the future, and obviously not everyone has that position, but you, you, know, you have to prepare for that's, that's likely to be um, a, a period at the end of your life where you're not quite as mobile as you, as you used to be. So his sort of warning or solution to people in the article is you really need to set aside money for that 80 plus uh, period. So interesting to have another look at, at uh, what, what Keating was saying. I thought the interesting part of that article was really just how life expectancy has changed in what's a relatively short period yeah. of time and him revisiting the plans that he'd laid out two decades earlier and saying this is not sufficient anymore based on how long people are living now. Yeah, exactly. And it is amazing how this life expectancy has increased so, so rapidly. And we had an article last week written by Don Ezra. Don has had a, a long career uh, in, in risk management and thinking about retirement. He's now writing about the subject. And he wrote about the crucial mistakes we make in thinking about life expectancy. And I'll just draw out a couple of things because it was a great reminder uh, to me of, so of something that I'd forgotten. That when we're told about life expectancy at birth, so we might be told uh, that life expectancy is now 85 years old, that average includes all the people who, who die before they reach, this, say, the age of 65. It's an average. If you reach the age of 65, your life expectancy at 65 is actually a lot longer than, reach, than 85. You're likely to live at least five years longer than that because that's the average of people who are currently 65. Uh, so that, you've got to think about life expectancy um, that, that way uh, if you're planning for your retirement and you're already older. Another point he makes out uh, makes is that a lot of people are uh, going to retirement in couples. So you should think about the life expectancy of one member of the couple. And that's actually that uh, if you think of the age of, of 85 being the life expectancy of someone who's 65, that's a 50-50 chance of reaching 85. It means one person's going to live a lot longer than that. This is a matter of reframing expectations on life expectancy and if you're going to retire at 60 you really have to think about your money lasting you know maybe 35 years you know um, and, and that changes how your planning should be. It was interesting going through that article the, the different nuances of planning but I imagine it's one of those topics that for a lot of people doesn't come in until potentially it's too late well not too late but it's late in the cycle for yeah. doing that planning and it's probably one of those topics that you don't really want to talk that much about <laughs> either. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slightly morbid topic, but it's sort of the reality of it, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think it would be, look, we do have a pension system as a fallback system, and we do have a good health system. The, the biggest unknown variable for me is in, say, 30 years' time, when we know there'll be a far fewer people working, supporting the, the federal budget, will the pension and health system be what it is today? And I really wouldn't want to have to rely on that. And that was really the argument that Keating was making around some alternatives, wasn't it? Yeah, it was about setting exactly. aside some of your initial lump sum super yeah. as, as a fallback for that latter yeah. stage of your retirement. So James, what have you um, found in the, in the live wire uh, recently? Well, it's a bit of a change of pace from thinking about planning for retirement. We're, <laughs> we're going to take it into the small caps universe of the Australian market where I'm not sure if you follow it, but it's been um, running hot yeah. in the past three months and the fund manager reports have been hitting social media uh, thick and fast with you know, high single digit. And in some cases, uh, one case I saw a fund manager return 14% for the month of October, which is quite wow. extraordinary. <laughs> so things are definitely hot. The market dialing stories are starting to come through. I've picked an article from Martin Conlon from Schroders and they're a value style manager and tend to be quite conservative in their approach. His article is, can A2 Milk's earnings match the hype? It's uh, just a great reminder about how much froth can build up into these things. Now, froth, A2, A2 Milk, very good. Yeah, and it's, listen, I'm not taking anything away from the company. It's a great company. I just wanted to highlight some of the stats because I think when emotion is running hot, people can feel like they're missing out and there is the temptation to, to catch this. And it's maybe, you know, the purpose of Conlon's article was to, to bring you back and just focus on some of the numbers. So in, in the past month, A2 Milk added a billion dollars in one month, a billion dollars in market capitalization, taking it to $5.5 billion market cap. Some other high profile small caps, WiseTech also added close to a billion dollars and Blackmores, which you may remember fell massively out of favor about 12 months ago, added half a billion dollars for the month as well. Yeah. So some, some big moves Incredible there. Incredible moves. To give you an in indication of what the impact that has on the index for A2 Milk, at the start of October, the company represented 3.4% of the small industrials index. And for that month, it accounted for 17% of the performance in that particular index. So, you know, big company, companies becoming big and having a, a really profound impact on the index. And this is the quote that, I mean, really popped off the page to me from Conlon, which is, price momentum and financial market asset value creation often make wealth creation seem easy. Making the profits to support the paper wealth is hard to do. Yeah. And he has gone and into a bit of an analysis of how much operating profit he would need to see from A2 Milk to justify the current valuation. And he breaks it down to assume that um, if every potential candidate to buy A2 Milk formula in Australia was to do so, you would need two Australias and right. all of them buying only A2 milk to get to, that, um, to get to that operating profit. And so I think it's just a reminder of people get carried away with the potential blue sky opportunities that new markets like China present. He puts some numbers behind it and it's just a bit of a, a, you know, a, bit of a, a sound check and a sense check for, for how things can really get carried away when markets are running hot. I mean, the other side of this is it actually creates problems for fund managers who are not aboard that stock. And it's very easy for a fund manager to be doing a good job but miss out on an A2 
and then suddenly for a quarter they are 5% under index and having to justify to, the, to their investors why they've done so badly in inverted commas uh, when they're just following the, the principles that they sold to people. And the difficulty you have that investors tend to back last year's winners. You know, so they go into the people who are winning and then you see the reversals and, and they've actually got out at the worst possible time. I also saw some uh, data from uh, Comsec that A2 Milk is by far the highest market turnover on the ASX uh, in the last three months. Now if you think about what A2 Milk is compared to the size of the banks and BHP and Woolworths and yet there's more turnover, more activity in A2 Milk, that shows it's a lot of speculation, it's a lot of day traders and um, you know it's the sort of stock that can go down as quickly as it goes up but so far people who backed it are the winners. Coming up uh, this, this week we've got a, an article on the, on the bond market and I think a lot of people might yawn a bit when they hear about bonds because generally Australians are considered to be very underweight bond exposure even though that's the defensive part of most portfolios. In, in fact uh, the AFR recently ran articles written by Christopher Joy talking about um, how we have uh, the, the most exposed superannuation system in the world because we have so little allocated to bonds. And in fact bonds have had a great run for the last 30 years but mainly on the back of interest rates falling. So the question is what's next you know if interest rates and interest rates just can't have that sort of a rally again. So we have a good article from uh, Andy Sowerby who's from uh, Leg Mason and he talks about how fixed interest must undergo dramatic changes and that the future of fixed interest investing won't be the same as in the past. And particularly he talks about the duration. Now for those people who don't know, um, duration is a measure of a bond sensitivity to changing in interest rates. So for example if a bond has a duration of five um, the, the price of the bond will fall 5% for every 1% rise in interest rates. So knowing the duration of your portfolio is really important. And if you look at the Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate I Index, the, the index of all um, bonds all over the world, the duration in the last few years has risen from five years to seven years. And what that means is if interest rates rise 1%, then the capital value of that portfolio will, will uh, instead of falling just 5%, will fall 7%. Mm. So you have to be very conscious of, if you go into an index bond fund, uh, what the type of exposure that you have to uh, interest rates. So Andy talks about some uh, alternatives to, uh, to that, particularly looking at, say, um, developed market uh, uh, funds where the interest rates are higher um, and you can control the duration by going into floating rate rather than fixed rate. So the issue people have I think is good to have bond exposure for its defensive characteristics but if you've got a long duration exposure it doesn't have the defensive characteristics that you would hope for if interest rates rise. Um, so people should think more about the bond uh, positions. I think that's the best explanation of duration I've ever heard. Oh, well, there you are. Thanks. Let's hope we do more of that, it's, James. We need to put the Graham Hand <laughs> glossary of financial terms. That was, that was very good. Coming up on Livewire.
we have an interview with Troy Angus, who is from Paradise Asset Management. If people are familiar with Paradise Asset Management, they've been known for their small caps strategy and, and very well known for the success there. What people wouldn't know is, most people wouldn't know is that they have a, a large cap strategy as well that's been running for over a decade. And it's Troy Angus is the portfolio manager. He came from BT and the fund closed about six months after they started it. It was inundated with flows. They shut the fund and it's compounded that more than 300% in that decade right. um, through the GFC. We were able to secure an interview with him and talk to him about how the fund is positioned. And typically when we see large cap portfolios, they tend to be very close to benchmark. We don't see a lot of them where there's really big positions and active weights and variation away from the benchmark. Right now, this fund has got a really different portfolio to what the benchmark looks like in terms of weightings, with a particular bent towards big resources stocks like BHP and right. Rio Tinto, and a very strong um, or bullish view and expression on energy stocks. We spoke with Troy about a recent visit where he's been to China. They go up there every month. He'd just come back. We talked about what he was seeing and, and what was behind his bullish view on resources. So he gave us some good information there. He also talks about how he feels the investment in the energy infrastructure has just been so underdone over the past five years that um, the oil price is going to remain at elevated levels and, and potentially quite a bit higher from where it is now. So he had some very strong views on that. He talked about BHP as a company that's changing its spots in how it operates in terms of, of how it allocates incremental capital. And for something that's been a terrible investment for the past decade, mm. he really has a strong view that this is a company with new management, new discipline, new shareholder focus. And he thinks that despite the re-rating that BHP has already, uh, that the next few years for this company look very, very bright based on bottom-up analysis of the company, uh, changing corporate culture, and the outlook for the, the, the demand and supply equation for the core commodity, particularly iron ore, coking coal, and, and energy. So that's going to be a feature interview on Livewire over the coming week. And I really enjoyed having, you know, speaking to someone that is really taking risks to try and, you know, earn their fees mm. and do what they're promising to investors. So for me, that was an interesting interview and something I think people will enjoy in the week ahead. Yeah, I look forward to reading that. I think a lot of investors will be underweight resources because of the bad experience of the last few years and struggling to find a re-entry point. So that'll be interesting to watch. All right, well, we'd like to finish our weekly chat with something quirky that happened. What did you come across, Graham? The, the item that struck me as really unusual, James, was that a Queensland court has accepted a dead man's unsent draft text message, <laughs> leaving his possessions to his brother and nephew instead of his wife and son. And um, I mean, the, the circumstances are very sad. You know, this, this, this man obviously was, um, had no you know, desire to live at the end of his life. And a friend found the text message in the drafts folder of his mobile phone. And the message read as, as follows, and see whether you think that this would count as a will that overrides a, a will that's been witnessed and signed. The message was, you and your nephew, so that's to his brother, 
keep all I have, house and superannuation, put my ashes in the back garden, my, wealth, my wife will take her stuff only, she's okay, she's gone back to her ex again, I'm beaten, a bit of cash behind the TV and a bit in the bank, this is my will. Okay, now that's an unsent text message. And, you know, obviously, you know, difficult circumstances, but the court upheld that it, that it was a genuine will. So, you know, people have to think about um, what, you know, they might think that, that in, in the final stages um, of their parents' life, or um, they might be thinking in their planning, well, I will inherit the house or I'll in inherit something. You can't really rely on the fact that what, something quirky, something strange might not happen in those last, uh, in those last year or two. Anyway, uh, uh, what, what came across your desk, James? The story that came across my desk was about shareholder protest votes against remuneration reports. Right. Now, we're coming into um, November, AGM season, and headlines around protest votes against remuneration reports are going to come up. And most of the stories that you read actually relate to boards that are getting paid huge amounts of money, mm. and it often seems quite legitimate where the performance has been bad, that perhaps the shareholders should lodge a protest vote to indicate their disgruntled uh, views on how things have been handled. But what I learned during the week is that there is a cohort of investors that protest against every item on the agenda at an AGM. They right. just protest. And this example came to light when I was learning about the AGM of a charitably run listed investment company where the directors didn't earn a salary. In fact, they donated their time right. to the management of the fund. And when the proxy votes came in for the remuneration report, there was a protest vote against, against their, their remuneration, <laughs> even though they're not being paid. Right. So I think that was quite interesting to note that there's just those people out there that are willing to protest and, and, and put the boot in for just about anything. And uh, I, I couldn't help but laugh that, you know, there's, there's always people that are going to be out there that are unhappy with how something's being done at a company, but they'll, 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 they'll protest just for the sake of protesting because they have the option to do so rather than necessarily reading through what's being put forward as the resolutions and, and taking a closer look. So that was the quirky thing that made me laugh this week. Um, and that also wraps up our podcast episode two. I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and thanks for all the feedback that we've received. Links to all of the articles that Graham and I have discussed today will be listed in the articles below the podcast. Thanks James and we welcome your feedback or questions in the comments section on both the Cufflinks and Livewire websites and we'll be back next week. Mm.